recently there was a, I don't know where I saw it, but said, you know, what is the purpose of life? Purpose of life is not what you can do for yourself, but what you can do for somebody else. Your life, your journey starts now. Hi, welcome to the Journey Podcast, where we care deeply about real and authentic relationships. One way of doing that is learning about each individual's story, because when we learn from a story, somebody's own personal story, um, there's things that we might learn and grow from in our own individual lives. Um, today on the podcast, I have with me Terry Carlson and Devery. Um, today, we're going to learn about Devery's personal story um, of her life story up until this point. So welcome, ladies. Hi. Hi. Uh, and Devery, first I wanted to um, hear a little bit about your story. Just tell us a little bit about who you are, what your interests are, um, anything that you want to add that makes you unique or special or different. Okay. I, um, I mean, there, there's so much to talk about in 55 years. I'm actually looking at retiring this year, a little early than most. My grandmother and mother both died of cancer at 64, so if you take 64 minus 55, that's not a lot of time left, and there's still things I need to do. Um, I feel like I need about six years to live the lifetime that I want to live. Um, Why do you say six years? Well, it's going to take that much time to pursue all the interests that I have. <laughs> it's difficult to prioritize um, all the things that I want to do. So why, why six? Why not 10 or 50? Oh, it's just a number. Okay. <laughs> just a number I picked a while ago. Um, yeah, I don't know why six. So you have six years worth of things to do that you can't do because you've been working all the time. Yes. But even if I weren't working all the time, I would still be able to live six lifetimes. Um, my grandfather used to say that the day you stop learning is the day you start dying. And I found that so true. Even my dad is 84 and he's in a book club. He's in an exercise club. He wanted to go to a CAD drawing school, but he can't run a computer. Um, so he's just you know, sitting out there going, well, there's so much more I need to learn. Mm -hmm. And he's been a brilliant, amazing person, but he's not just sitting in the nursing home waiting to die. You know, he's, he's there for his care, but he's also living his best life. Um, have you been like that your whole life where you have things that you want to do, things that you want to accomplish, like goals and dreams? I am constantly overbooked. Um, so I want to meet all the people and do all the things and go to the concerts and the celebrations and play with the kids and play with pets and ride horses and travel. And you can only do one at a time. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. So how do you determine what things are important? What things get your energy and attention right now? Work. Um, I don't know how people find time to work in their lives, honestly. Um, that takes up 40 to 60 hours of your week and then eight hours of sleeping and four to eight hours a night to cook and then your time is gone. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things go by the wayside that you might want to be doing, but you have to earn a living somehow. Um, so as you can see behind me, I've got my painting. I'm actually doing a mural up here in this room and to the right of that, from my view, 
and right behind me to the left is a cupboard of fiber arts. I do a lot of knitting, crocheting. Um, I'm a free range knitter. Okay. So I will I write a lot of patterns of my own. I will look at a pattern and go, oh, that's really cool. But what if you did this? What if you just did this other thing to that pattern? Um, so it's fun for me, but it's kind of hard for people to go, you know, hey, I want to make what you're making. I'm like, yeah, well, you can't. <laughs> I mean, you might be I, able to do it. So we're in your craft lot, our craft office or craft store You're area. in my studio, dubbed my yeah. treehouse by a guest of mine. Um, I have an Airbnb, so three my three bedrooms downstairs are rented out most of the time. I have shut them down for COVID until May 31st. So I've been rattling around this big old empty house and getting all kinds of stuff done. I um, bet you have some unique stories for running an Airbnb. I, it's been interesting. I've done couch surfing, which we mentioned earlier. Um, what is couch surfing? Couch surfing used to be a phenomenal worldwide organization where let's say I'm from Thailand and I'm going to the United States and you just tag your host and say, Hey, I'm going to be in Cedar Rapids for these two nights. Can I stay at your place? So you come sit, sleep on my couch. We share a meal or I've done so many different things with, I've got people all over the world that have become friends. And then if I'm traveling and I want to stay somewhere I'll tag a host in there and say, hey, you know, do you have a couch for this these two nights? It doesn't cost anything, but the community is what made couch surfing so amazing. Um, it was just about people helping people. And then about, I think it was about five years ago, they decided to go corporate and sell stocks, and then they got a bunch of public press. And now people are like, oh, I can stay places for free? Mm -hmm. That's not really what it's about. Um, <laughs> So have you developed some relationships um, with people that you've met through the years? Yeah, I've maintained friendships. I can't even count how many. I've done 150 Airbnb host um, stays and probably at least 100. I've been doing couch surfing for a decade. I also wow. am a warm showers host and global freeloaders and um, ARF which is worldwide, woof, worldwide organization of organic farmers. And that one is actually a longer term four to six week stay where someone comes to your house, helps you with something in exchange for room and board. Wow. Yeah. I've, you know, the first time I've ever stayed at an Airbnb was when we lived in uh, Mexico. Right. And um, with the whole reason we chose to stay in Airbnb is we had um, three little kids and a baby that was just fidgety all night long. And we couldn't like, we didn't or couldn't want to spend the money on, you know, two bedrooms for a hotel. So we started looking into Airbnbs and that was the most unique experience we've had because I feel like we got to see more of the real life culture of Mexico, like, cause we stayed in somebody's home and we got um, local coffee. They, that was one of their perks of their Airbnb is they left you with some local coffee and it was delicious. It was a unique experience that I'll never forget. And we had, yeah, several different rooms and we didn't interact with the host. Well, actually we did interact with the host because, um, we stayed in Guanajuato in Mexico and there wasn't any parking close by. So we had to park like a mile away. And when you have all this luggage, he came over to our car and helped us carry all of our luggage over. So it was a unique experience. Yeah. But I wish I would have, well, 
have known Spanish a little bit better and have known how to like, you know, to keep up with some of these like unique experiences. I didn't think about that at the time. Very cool. Most of the people that I host are mostly fluent or very fluent in English. Um, I had a really cute couple from, he was French and she was Bulgarian okay. and they spoke, I think seven languages between them. Wow. Um, and it's just, it, it excites me to listen to people speaking in their first languages. Mm -hmm. I can't understand a word most of them are saying. Um, but it's very interesting to me that they're comfortable and, mm -hmm. and interacting. I love to cook with people. Um, I love when they cook their favorite dish from their country. I think the most unique thing I had was the Frenchman made cooked cucumbers in cream sauce. Hmm. Uh, we don't cook cucumbers. We pickle them, we eat them raw, we you know put them in salads, we do mm -hmm. other stuff, but we don't cook them. And that was really good. I think it's cool. I have had a couple. Um, so when we lived in Mexico, we had a couple of friends teach us some um, dishes and can we make them the way they do? No, but it was such a unique experience that I still make some of them to this day. And I think they're delicious. And a lot of like our friends that have tried them have been like, how did you think to even put this together? And I'm like, it's not, not me. <laughs> yeah. Friends from another culture. One of the couples I had recently, she's from Taiwan and he's from China. And they, one Friday night, made hot pot for the three of them. They, oh, wow. I'm, I'm going to have to buy a hot pot. And she's still in Cedar Rapids. Mm -hmm. She said, I'm her first friend in Iowa. And she's going to teach me again how to do it so I know what to buy. And then I made them uh, pot roast the okay. next Friday. So. Pot roast so with, cool. a pot with carrots and potatoes and they made a lot of other stuff and taught me to cook uh it's the first time i've eaten pork ear okay. and pork snout i think because uh, we don't eat those pieces mm -mm. Like, you know when you're taking advantage of every single piece of every animal that you butcher you eat it mm -hmm. it's delicious when you're thinking about the coach surfing in relation to the um, Airbnb, do you see more international people, internationals in either way, or what percentage of internationals versus, um, you know, people from our country that you see on a regular basis either way? It's probably an even mix 50-50. That's still pretty high when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, I think at the last count I've hosted from, I think it was 45 countries, 90 languages and 14 wow. religions. Um, That's pretty wild. And, yeah, everyone, I mean, I can count on one hand how many have been turds. Um, turds. <laughs> yeah, just flat out, get out of my house, turds. So out of all those people, you've, you can count on one hand. That's pretty good. Yeah, this is pretty good average. And those, those were all from Airbnb. So what okay. do you do when that happens? And you want somebody out? Well, it's shown the door. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's my house. <laughs> you know, I mean, when, when most people go and are getting a room for free or very, very little, they're gracious and mm -hmm. thoughtful and, you know, considerate. And these five apparently didn't get the memo. Mm -hmm. 
Hopefully they weren't all there at once. No. Uh, one young man overdosed, tried to die on my couch. Um, another guest actually saved his life. I, he would have died if he would have come home and I wouldn't have known it. Um, wow. He'd been dead by the time I got down here. Um, I had another young man that, well, there was an investigation. He was accused of rape in three states prior to reaching Iowa. Then he was accused of rape in Iowa. Um, and he etched my windows, LA Alpha, etched the glass of my window in his room. Um, those are the two worst. But, I mean, that's still two out of, what, 250 stays. Right. Not bad. What's it like for you now having to shut all that down? Because you are a people person. And relationships are important to you. And now you have all of it shut down until the end of May. There's Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm keeping pretty close touch with my church members. Um, Doing a lot of praying, a lot of dancing, a lot of home remodeling. I just, I have a, a, my house was built in 1904. And part of that house is a servant's stairs that goes what used to be the kitchen door to the landing of the second floor and landing between the first and second floors. And this was a big dead space and it's been just a catch all since I moved in. So this today, mostly I started painting it Sunday. I finished it today and put in a coat rack and an area to keep my cleaning supplies and organized all of my shelving and put up places to hang coats and really made it a serviceable area. I finished one blanket, start to finish, it's almost queen sized. I finished a shawl that I started a number of years ago. I started two more blankets, um, knitting and crocheting, and I'm tackling the paper monster in my office. So, big house, we've got lots to do. One thing I was wondering if you wanted to talk about, you don't have to, but I know you've, from our conversations, you have gone through a lot of adversity in your life. There yes. have been several different things. Anything in that, that that you want to talk about as far as how you went through it and how you survived it and who helped you along the way? Um, I can, I speak openly about any of it. Uh, probably the most, the one that surprises other people the most. And mm-hmm. I lived through it. It's not, it's just part of who you are. Um, Everybody's going to have adversity. Everybody's, you know, life is not fair. It's still good, but it's not fair. Uh, My father was abusive. He was um, mentally traumatic, physically traumatic, and sexually abusive. And I have absolutely forgiven him to the point where I am now his guardian and conservator. Wow. That's, um, how did you get to that point? I didn't want to live angry all my life. You know, when, if you don't forgive someone, you know, it's the poison Mm. comparison, you know, being, I'm trying to think of the phrase when you were always angry at what was done to you, and you never let that go. You live in that moment and you never move on. Mm-hmm. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That's the phrase. Um, and without that experience, it wouldn't have made me the compassionate person I am. 
and why, I mean, my sister was raised by the same family. We were raised in the same house. And why, I don't know how she reacted or she had the same experience. She was the favored child. Um, so I was always told that I was the milkman's kid. I was adopted. Uh, he always used the excuse that, you know, since I wasn't his child, then that gave him leeway to do everything that he did. Um, because, you know, it's, it's not like it's your, I'm your daughter. Um, but his name is on my birth certificate. I'm not sure where to take that conversation. Where do you want to go? <laughs> I can't. Well, what, how, did you, how did you react to that when he kept saying those kind of things? It, I would think it would make somebody, anybody feel unwanted. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was the ugly sister and... Tammy was the smart one and she was the pretty one and she was the favored one. And, you know, she got, I remember one, one event. Um, my mother did divorce him when I was about 13. And so he was trying to play the good dad and he had taken her uh, on a visitation and got her a brand new bicycle. He never made an effort to get me a bicycle. I had a ratty old brown bike that I think I had painted myself that I ran around the neighborhood in, but never had anything that, that I mean, she was always favorite. Did that change so, your relationship with her? Yeah, we've been estranged since my mother died in, in 2006. Um, she doesn't forgive. She's not a forgiving person. She was upset with me because I took some uh, ashes out of the urn during the funeral and didn't do it properly. <laughs> so, and then um, after my mom died, we'd been living in a house together for four years, the last four years of her life, and she had just retired. And she got um, lung cancer. So the lung cancer was diagnosed in March and she passed in May. It was very fast. Well, my sister had never, we, we, mom and I duped it out. I mean, we had fights. We had, I was had a son at the time. I still have a son, but um, he was young. So she would stay home and I'd go to work and pay the bills and she would take care of him. But she completely undermined my parenting constantly. Um, so we fought, we fought the first couple of years, probably a lot, but we'd worked work through all that. We, all of the issues were resolved. Um, when my mother was, well, when my sister was 16 and still in high school, my mother abandoned her and moved to California with her second husband. <clears throat> she was then adopted by an amazing family down in Swisher, um, fully adopted and but before that, she had lived in the house where we grew up for, I bet it was a year, I don't remember. And DHS was trying to catch her, and she had pets out there, and she had a little horse, and they finally just said, listen, Tammy, come live with us. So she did. And so she got kind of a second family, or a second chance at a family. I was on my own by then. I was 19. And working full-time and had a boyfriend and a little apartment. And she moved out there and finished her high schooling. Well, she never, I don't think she ever dealt with that with mom. 
and then mom died. So she ran around uh, with the urn in her car for a week after mom was cremated. And so she was very angry with me because I was kind of, well, what she said was, well, let me back up. After mom passed away, uh, my son was in a ton of trouble. He was at ASAC. He was into uh, drug addiction or he was had drug addiction. He ran away. We lost the house. There was a lot going on. And she was my remaining family. And I called her one day and said, hey, you know, Eric ran away. And she said, well, you are always acting like the victim. If you don't quit acting like the victim, I'm just going to disown you and we won't be friends. We won't be family anymore. And I thought, what I really thought was, you selfish little bitch. You have no idea. No idea. You don't have children. You have always been taken care of. You have always been favored. And for you to sit there and tell me that my only child running away is me acting a victim, I guess we're finished. Um, I don't remember if that was before or after the funeral. It might have been after. But at the funeral, when I Eric wanted some, Eric was really close to my mom, and he wanted some ashes. And so I popped open the urn and poured out some ashes and pissed her off. I was like, she's not in there. She's gone. This is dirt, basically. Um, I'm not sure why that was so important to her. Um, I haven't talked to very many of my family on that side since. Ironically, my father's side of the family has become a lot closer since my mother died. Um, it's been very interesting. They're just amazing people. You but know, mm -hmm. One thing I was going to say that caught me or grabbed my attention was that when you talked about forgiveness, how it was a choice. Yeah. It was something that, you know, you have to choose to do. And I think that concept is so hard for people, a lot of people, because it, they think it should be a feeling. Like, right. I should feel like I want to forgive. And if I don't feel like it, then I don't. And so did you ever have those feelings of like, well, I have the right to be mad? And what made you like walk over those two? Like, I have a choice to forgive. And this is where I'm at. Uh Carrying around a right to be mad will never change the other person. It happened. It's done. They've forgotten about it. You continuing to live hurt is just chaining yourself to that emotion. Mm -hmm. Every how moment. Did, how did, that's, that's something that a lot of people have a hard time getting to. How did you learn that? How did you get to that place where that became your your way of coping with relationships? I don't know. I mean, you know, why didn't I just be angry and take that anger out on him when I had the opportunity? Did you have someone in your life who taught, who modeled that for you? You talk about your grandparents sometimes. Did you have people who modeled that, that for you? I can't think of any specific situation but probably my grandparents I think my mother was pretty forgiving of him he was very abusive to her um, and she just continued to live her life in spite of everything that she'd gone through um, 
Well, and you've had, you've had a lot of opportunities to kind of harbor a grudge and you've never done that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I thought it would be nice if you, you joined us, because I think this, just your attitude, I mean, when you think about the, the stuff you've talked about, you know, and, and then am I, you said that you lost that house that you were living in with your mom and with your son um, at some point. So there was a period when you were homeless. Is that kind of yeah. what happened? There were two periods when I was without a house. I've never been you know, traditionally homeless where I don't have absolutely nowhere to go. I'm living in the car or on the street. I have nothing to my name. I've never been to that point. Okay. Um, there have been two periods in life when I was without a residence, and that was one of them. Uh, Mom and I bought this house together, agreed that we would both carry life insurance in the event that somebody died that the house would be paid off and the other person would be provided for. She always had cigarettes, but she let her life insurance expire. So I had about $20,000 of equity in that house. It was being purchased on contract from this fantastic couple. And I walked away from it. Um, I couldn't keep up the house payment and keep track of a, a transient teenager. Um, who was, you know, just buried in his own grief. Were you believing, at, as of the point when mom died, did you believe she had, she honored that that thing, you agreement you guys made to, to hold the life insurance, or did you know before she died that she hadn't done it? I didn't know until I called the life insurance company and they said, well, this has lapsed. That had to be disappointing. Mm -hmm. That was very disappointing. I had my favorite garden there. I had, the whole yard was planted in flowers and it was gorgeous. I walked away from all of it. So then I lived with um, a friend of mine, gave me a room for, I think I was there for about a month and then realized that that wasn't a good situation for me. So I left them. Um, and then another friend let me live in. They had just moved out of a house because they built a house. So they let me live there for the winter. And then Oh, the, my friend with the horses, uh, who I keep my horses with, had found a property that had a, a small 500-square-foot house on it and a lot of acres where the horses could run and an indoor riding arena and stalls, and we were able to rent that place. And I was there for well, on that property for 10 years. And then the property changed ownership, and the second owner... Um, It was good for about four years, and then they got tangled up with a um, a really pretty horrible human being, um, and then were abusive. They broke into my house. They stole from me. They were abusive to my horses. Um, we've since gone to court, and I moved out of there. And then I was, I lived with my son for about six months. And then I lived with another friend for about six months. And then I bought my current house. So how, what steps did you take or how did you get to where you are today? What do you mean? Is there anything like through your journey of, you know, losing your residence and then living with different friends and family that, um, I guess that you took or that you learned from each experience and then 
you know, major who you are today. Like you could look back and say, I know this experience taught me this, or this experience taught me this. Uh, yes, I learned things from all of those experiences. A lot of people, I'm gonna kind of turn a corner here. A lot of people confuse joy with happiness. Mm -hmm. Joy comes from God. Whether I am houseless, got my cats in three locations, don't know where my horses are going to be, um, going to work and I haven't showered because I slept in the car. I mean, all of that, there's still joy. Mm -hmm. Happiness is fleeting. You know, I can be joyful and grateful because I had a car to sleep in, for example, even though I don't have an address to call home. Mm -hmm. That's just joy. That's just something inherent if you recognize it. A lot of people don't how'd, believe it. How do you learn to recognize that? Um, I don't know. I think, I don't know. Because I feel like, you know, that concept, I think you're, you're right on, is that the world we live in, it seems like our joy and happiness are the same thing. I can't be happy or joyful if I don't have the things that I think I should have. And so how do you get to a point where you're content with what you have and are joyful in what you have? Joyful is internal. Joyful is just... <clears throat> Being in the moment, knowing, okay, for example, I'll use, I've got a two-year-old grandson, and right now it's pretty glum, pretty glum. I haven't seen the little guy in two weeks, haven't seen my son in two weeks, um, haven't seen the mom in a couple weeks, and that doesn't make me very happy. But there's joy in knowing that that little guy is being taken care of. And when this is all over, I'll get to play with them and he'll come stay at grandma's for a couple nights and that mom's taking care of him and she's not very happy right now either. Mm -hmm. Then we're all stuck inside, but this will pass. And there's still this little critter out there and my son and my friends and everyone who is, is saying, okay, you know, this is uncomfortable, but nobody died. Well, mm -hmm. nobody in my immediate family has died. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I so think really, such a so really the being in some some un, unhappy circumstances don't doesn't you don't let that rob your joy right well even that situation with the place that I'd moved out of where they were being abusive and um just just absolutely horrible my prayer at that time was God move or move me so I have no control over how I can't even put words on how absolutely devastating it was. I still will not go back to that property to see my friend because I don't want to run into the, the property owner. I was at, this is two years later. I was at um, Casey's one day and I got some coffee and I rounded the cashiers and he was at the cashier counter and I zipped right past him. Didn't even look up. I want nothing to do with this man. He was abusive. He was 
He allowed his farmhand to be abusive, to threaten me, to steal from me, to break into the house, and absolutely has no concept that he's done anything wrong. But it was so devastating to me that I, two years later, I don't even want to go out and visit my friend who really could use my help because I don't want to take a chance of running into this man because he is still incredibly abusive. That said, I've forgiven him. It's uncomfortable to consider being around him. But I need to get out of God's way and let God take care of it. Um, because if I just keep in there going, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to just keep reliving this, then I can't move on. So forgiveness in, in, in what you're saying then is um, not, it's, it's just refusing to relive it. It's refusing to, to ruminate on it. It's refusing to hold that out there and say, you know, look at what happened to me. No, it's more like, instead of being in the room, you're looking through the window. Okay. Yeah. I can't, I'm still, I still am uncomfortable just talking about that. Um, because then they took me to court and they won and I won, but they were never accountable for the abuse that they, they took on or gave to me. Mm -hmm. Um, there is absolutely nothing I can do to change that. And living in that room for the rest of my life and going, this was horrible. This was uncalled for. This is not fair. It's true. All of that is true. But it's over. And God moved me to, I mean, he, he uprooted me. I was ready to stay there for ye years. My horses were right outside my door. I uh, had a nice big house and friends. And it was right by trails and right by a veterinarian. It was perfect. And I was not ready to leave in spite of all the trauma that was going on around me. And God just plucked me out of there, shoved me around the neighborhood for a while. And because he had this house waiting for me, the house that I bought, um, we can go there. The house that I bought, I found out later, had been sitting empty for 14 years. They suspect someone had either died or been murdered here. My friend bought it from the bank four years before we even met. He spent four years and about 10 grand upgrading the house um, to turn it into a rental property. When we met, I, because I was homeless, I was having to go back into work. And I happened to be sitting right over the wall from this gentleman. And we got to talking and huge, huge, amazing heart of God. Uh, pastor who had suffered some horrible tragedies in his own life. And he said, you know, I've been reducing my rental properties and I've got this one house. If you're interested, I'll sell it to you for what I've got in it. And he did. Wow. That has allowed me to do Airbnb. So there's an income stream for my retirement. It has allowed me to pay the house off in two years. And it has allowed me to retire at age 55. So even though everything I went through, you know, through my life with Jack, with my mom, with this horrible man, um, God had this for me. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to bring out, I think, before we run out of time here is 
Um, one of the things, because I, when we were working, we were going through the coaching together, yes. um, and one of the things that really um, stood out for me was just how much um, you, you know, when we talk about the journey coaching and and what it, you know, what it what it means and all of that stuff. You just from the very beginning, from the first time I met you, it felt like you just had that same outlook on life. I mean, you you reach out to the people in your neighborhood. I love your story, and maybe you can go into more detail about this. But what you do on Halloween? Yeah, um, I'm taking back Halloween. <laughs> I have friends who are Wiccan and friends who are atheists and <laughs> of every um, every religion, and Halloween seems to just bring out the worst in people. And yeah, it's fun. The kids come around, they get candy and, you know, people are poisoning the candy and put razor blades in the candy. And that's just not right for kids. Kids have done nothing. My home is situated in a neighborhood that is not financially blessed. We have a lot of need here. So what I decided from the first year that instead of candy, and I do do like two little pieces of candy, I all year long buy and make, well, I buy gloves, just those silly little knit gloves, and I make hats and scarves, and I collect things, and I buy toys, so instead of candy, I'll do color books and colors, or a pack of cards, or Hot Wheels, or, or something, so when the kids come trick-or-treating, they get a set of gloves, and a toy, and a couple pieces of candy, and the kids who are very transparent, um, <laughs> one little girl last year, she picked out her gloves, and she picked out her toy, and she said, can I have that hat too? And I'm like, sure, you can have that hat. <laughs> um, the first year I did it, I opened one, my door one morning about three days later, and there was a note on the back of, I think it was a restaurant order sheet that said, thank you. Wow. Um, the most touching part of the first year, we have a, like every neighborhood, we got a pack of teenagers that come around here. And I was cleaning up for the night. It was about 7.30. And about seven of these boys come flying up the alley on their bikes, some of them on foot. And before they even hit the street across from my house, the one boy hollers out, somebody said, you're giving away mittens. No. I'm still crying. This 14-year-old didn't even have a pair of mittens. He didn't have a pair of gloves. And a stupid little 50-cent pair of gloves meant the world to that kid. I don't know where he's at. They, they, you know, they've grown up, gone on. They've probably got cars by now. But it, it was nothing to me. But this kid had permittance. It really was nothing to me other than, hey, have some stuff. That's one thing I think I've heard as a theme of your whole story and that I've really enjoyed is that you've chosen chosen and I think that's a big word to find the good and to see the good and to change an experience for somebody else to give them that experience and I think you know how cool I mean that inspires me you know to think what kind of things can I do and even in my own life you know choosing to forgive choosing to see and look for the good in a circumstance that doesn't always look good. And I think that's inspiring because no matter what our story is, there can be good to be found or good to see. 
and do. And before we wrap this up, did you have anything that you wanted to add, either of you? I think that sums it up pretty good. <laughs> well, and I want. Recently, there was a, I don't know even where I saw it, but said, you know, what is the purpose of life? Purpose of life is not what you can do for yourself, but what you can do for somebody else. And if you've done that, you've already met your purpose. We'll stop worrying about it. I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us and our listeners. I, I know that there's a bit of hope and a glimmer, even in the times that we're living in, that there is still good to be found. And, you know, there's a saying, if you, you know, see good, do good. And um, also too, at Journey Coaching, we're all about um, getting people in relationships with others, intentional one-on-one -on -one relationships um, to discuss your worldview, discuss your strengths, your areas of improvement, and to really grow. So if that is something that you're interested in, in we invite you to check out our website at journeycoaching.org or check us out on um, any of your favorite podcast apps. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time and make sure you like and subscribe. Visit us at journeycoaching.org and check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Start your own journey at journeycoaching.org. Your life, your journey starts now.